You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Lauren. Democrats in Michigan are refusing to accept the local implications of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. What are your thoughts on this and what this means for Michigan? Well, I think it's, um, I guess I would say that the reaction is to try to, to accomplish Roe versus Wade again at, at the state level by one of two means. I mean, one is that they're currently litigating to try to uh, get a court to find a similar right uh, to abortion that Roe found as a, I mean, t- termed as a privacy right, but uh Obviously, the, the functional outcome of Roe is that the privacy right included a right to abort a baby. They're trying to find a, a, a court that will uh, find a similar right in the Michigan Constitution. And they have some challenges there, in my opinion. I mean, there's previous case law that says we don't have a similar right to privacy. There's case law at the Court of Appeals level that says there's not a right to abortion in the state constitution. So the the most recent decision on this from the Michigan Court of Claims says that there's a right to bodily autonomy sufficient to uh, include a right to abort a baby uh, and finding that the attorney general can't enforce the 1931, which is really the 1846 uh, pro-life law that we have. Uh, so in terms of judicial decision making, I think it's the same kind of um, results-based reasoning that uh, Roe had kind of using amorphous terms, um, and I guess I should say Casey kind of continued this using amorphous terms that are really subject to uh, lots of not just disagreement but kind of uh, uh, opposite interpretations uh, in order to to find a result that is clearly not really in our constitution. It would be very easy, especially given that our state constitution was adopted in 1963. It would have been very easy to articulate a right to abortion, and it's been now almost 60 years since that Constitution has been in force, and it's repeatedly been found to not include such a right. Um, And so I I think it's a really uh, uh, absurd judicial decision to, to, to find one today. If that route doesn't work for the uh, and I should say that the state legislature has intervened in that case to uh, make some of the points that I just made. If that doesn't work, or I guess I should say even if it does, uh, there's also a petition drive that recently submitted several hundred thousand signatures, a couple hundred thousand more than I think were probably even necessary. Uh, Some of them will probably be tossed, but still the point is there's going to be, it's very likely there's going to be on the ballot this fall a uh, constitutional amendment to establish a right to abortion that is more expansive than the right that was articulated in Roe. That would be constitutional amendment uh, to the Michigan Constitution. Uh, it's, a, it's, I think, important to understand that that amendment that, that's being offered is more expansive, not only than Roe, but then the rhetoric that's being used to uh, induce people to sign the petition uh, and will be used to, to try to tempt folks into voting for it. It's essentially an abortion on demand until the uh, end of pregnancy, uh, or even uh, as the pregnancy might be naturally ending, a partial birth abortion would probably be um, consistent with that language. So it would take Michigan from being the most pro-life state in the country in terms of our statutes today uh, to being the most pro-choice state in the country uh, according to our state constitution. So it would be a radical change, um, completely disregarding the value of a unique human life inside the womb. And I am, I'm hopeful that we can make that uh, point across the state. Certainly that's what I want the listeners here to understand is that it, it even if you were a person with some sympathy to uh, terminating pregnancy, say early 
in the pregnancy. I mean, I don't, I do not agree with that, but it's obviously a position that some people sort of take. This is much further than that. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a no holds barred, uh, approach. So it, that's, what's important to understand about it is that it is really not, um, uh, consistent even with Roe, certainly not consistent with say, I mean, you know, there's, there are, it's not as though the polls tell you what's right and wrong, right? But the polls do suggest that uh, the median voter might prefer uh, some early, uh, uh, su- some support for early abortions or something like that. I mean, that's that's an argument that I'm willing to have, but this is not that. This is uh, far beyond that. How does the overturning of Roe make the upcoming governor election even more significant? Well, I mean, there's lots of pro-life legislation that, uh, depending on both the outcome of this constitutional amendment uh, uh, petition drive and uh, and the litigation, that that could be done even in a, in in a generally less host or more hostile to life environment. Um, I mean, right now I have legislation introduced that I don't know is as it's it's less necessary in a post row world because our general prohibition on elective abortions. Uh, should be enforceable right now, um, and I I believe is enforceable right now uh, by anybody not not the attorney general, but and she wouldn't enforce it anyway, so it's kind of moot. But anyway, uh, I think that that sort of uh, more specific pieces of pro life legislation would still be live, and that would be a big difference. I mean, our current governor will not sign anything uh, that is not supported by Planned Parenthood, for instance. So. Um, it would be a, a big difference maker in terms of pro-life legislation. Also, budget priorities. I mean, uh, for whatever reason, and I, I think that we actually talked about this a couple months ago, not fully understanding how far this would go, but there's been kind of a rhetorical assault on uh, pregnancy resource centers or pregnancy counseling centers that are known by different different terms around the country, but you know, places where uh, women can go and receive uh, some health care, but especially kind of uh, support um, in some cases, material support like uh, both the, the Pregnancy Resource Center in Hillsdale County and the one in Branch County. And Branch is called uh, uh, Beginnings Care for Life in Hillsdale. It's known, it used to be known as Alpha Omega. It's now known as Helping Hands. Both of these places had formula. They always have diapers on hand, things like that for, for families that maybe are taken by a surprise or maybe families that haven't even really formed where the, the father's not going to be a part of the picture or whatever. There's support available there. And uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren recently said that these places need to be shut down. I mean, it's completely insane. Uh, I, I genuinely didn't think that she could get crazier, but she evidently did because the idea of shutting a place down, she, I mean, I think her claim is that they trick women into not knowing about their abortion rights. It's really absurd uh, rhetoric. It's totally disturbing. Absolutely a violation. If you ask me, it's a violation of her oath, uh, to uphold the constitution to, because people have a different perspective, attempt to close them. And she wants this to be a federal action. Um, we could put support for those places the way we do other sorts of social services and healthcare, uh, opportunities. We could do that in our, uh, state budget, uh, but we can't do it with governor Whitmer. You recently introduced legislation outlawing illegal immigrant sanctuary cities in Michigan. Do you mind telling me a little bit more about this and specifically what a sanctuary city is and how they can be dangerous? Yeah, different cities around the the country have sort of adopted different tactics to do this. But the basic idea is to, to make the city a sanctuary from enforcement of our immigration laws. And the uh, the 
probably the, the, the most common way to do it, and this is what this legislation kind of is directed at, is by the city making a decision that its law enforcement apparatus will not cooperate with federal law enforcement in enforcing our immigration laws. So, uh, you know, if, if there is um, uh, maybe a crime, you know, a, a crime reported uh, by a person known to uh, not have a you know, legal uh, right to be in the United States, Notifying uh, ICE could be a step that's taken by the local law enforcement agency, but it would not be in this case, you know, uh, or there might just be some kind of a regulatory or, or other uh, interaction between the person and the local government. And uh, rather than notifying the federal government that there's been a violation of our immigration laws, it could just be ignored. That's probably the most common way that this comes out. The problem that I have with it is I think it's an anti-constitutional approach. The, uh, the Constitution says that our naturalization policy is in the purview of Congress. And to me, this is an obvious, uh, obviously correct way to organize this. The federal system that we have creates, uh, you know, reasons to do some forms of legislation locally, some at the state level. That's kind of the basic unit of, of government in the United States. And, uh, and then the federal government has a more limited set of responsibilities, but most of them are naturally national. So I would say naturalization policy or immigration policy is one of those. Uh, it really doesn't work given the rest of our of our status. You know the fact that our borders between states are um, com- you know completely open uh, and have to be that way. Uh, it doesn't make sense for one state to take one approach to immigration and for another state to take another approach. So it, it's kind of an area where I think the the correct federalist uh, reading of the Constitution is one where you say, well, it's actually very important that the national government does take this responsibility seriously. That doesn't always happen, but it obviously makes it harder if local governments are undermining that role. You also supported a recently approved House resolution urging President Biden to enforce the country's immigration laws and strengthen border protection. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, well, as I mentioned a second ago, I don't think that the federal government always uh, takes as seriously its responsibility to maintain border security as it should. Um, and, you know, there are, it, this is an issue that it's easy for people to sort of uh, make emotional appeals on and, uh, and try to undermine rational policy that way. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to sort of suggest that the alternatives are compassion or um, callousness. In reality, the only compassionate legal system is one that is um, uh, consistently enforced and oriented in a way to benefit those who it's supposed to benefit. Our immigration system is, uh, it should be directed at the what's beneficial to the citizens of the United States of America. Uh, and really, that's, that's its only responsibility. So uh, taking a humane approach to a um, consistent enforcement of our immigration policy is not difficult, in my opinion. I do think that the uh, that the current administration is um, not zealous in enforcing our immigration policy, the one the, the policies that we have now. There are lots of kind of uh, practices that are suboptimal in in our enforcement, uh, making it kind of, uh, in some cases, folks want it to be absurdly easy, for instance, to claim asylum and, uh, or, or say the remain in Mexico policy, which didn't prevent anyone from making asylum claims, but they had to make them while they were still in Mexico, if they were coming up through the Southern border. 
Um, these things were, were steps that the Trump administration took that uh, made a big difference in reducing the uh, flow of illegal immigration. And it's not as though any individual illegal immigrant is um, is definitionally, you know, the the, uh, the worst kind of person in the world. I mean, many of them certainly do have the lofty ambitions that other immigrants to our country have had over the centuries. Uh, but we still have to have an immigration policy that's consistently enforced. And the fact that a person is um, is coming here because they recognize that there are better opportunities here is not in and of itself a reason for this for the United States to say, well, then it also makes sense for us to have an immigration policy allowing that person to come here. And even if it does, it's got to be done in the manner that our law allows for. So uh, having an administration that just doesn't take these things seriously, puts pressure on our uh, law enforcement, not only the direct enforcement of the border itself, but eventually not knowing uh, who's here can create uh, identity issues and other things in, in the law enforcement um, uh, scheme. It also, I mean, it, you know, we deal with this driver's license issue where uh, as, a, as a matter of principle, most of us would prefer to not issue, say, driver's licenses to illegal immigrants. On the other hand, there's often not a good identification system for them when they're here and when the state can't uh, deport them themselves. It just creates this kind of consistent mess of dealing with who, who people are and where they're supposed to be. And if the federal government's not taking its role, role seriously and is sort of allowing folks to remain uh, in the country illegally with just kind of turning a blind eye towards it, it creates all kinds of problems for state and local governments as well. So that's that's the, the basic complaint that we're trying to convey. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. You recently introduced a resolution calling on Congress to end the federal student loan program, which would cease the issuing of student loans. What was the original purpose of the student loan system, and how is it no longer fulfilling that purpose? Well, I don't know that I was really around for the beginning of it, but I have to imagine that the idea was that... uh, Access to funds uh, shouldn't be a barrier towards uh, to to whether a person is able to attend college in the United States, and that's uh, I think uh, an understandable goal. People sort of thinking that uh, the the most meritocratic system would be one where the amount of money that you already have or your parents have or whatever doesn't determine whether you get to go to college. So my, that's my assumption is that it, it was begun as a as kind of a, a way to to make it about whether you could succeed in college. Uh, in other ways rather than whether you already had the money to go. And uh, what I think it's the result of that has been, uh, well, first of all, it has not tamped down the cost of education at all, obviously putting more money into uh, the the kind of the demand side of, of this economy, of the education economy, has contributed, I think, to rising uh, cost of inflation, of rising inflation in the cost of attendance. Um that's separate from the current sort of bout of with inflation that we're dealing with uh, generally. Uh, that's been going on for more than a decade, really a couple decades of pretty consistent um, uh, rises in tuition costs that exceed the general co- uh, inflation or general you know cost of living increase or whatever. So uh, what we have now is a system that is so expensive that there's a push to forgive a portion or in some some people's minds all of the federal student debt that's held by people that still owe it. I mean, the, we could get into the problems with the forgiveness in and of itself, but I just want to like take the point that people are acknowledging that these debts are not, you know, in some cases they think it's just not reasonable to expect these debts to be repaid. 
in that case, I think the first step would be to stop creating the debt. And so I think that this resolution is going to be looked at by some as sort of um, uh, heartless or whatever, but it's obviously a system where what the advocates of uh, lower costs of education are saying is that these people can't be expected to pay back the debt, which tells me that it's immoral to continue to issue it. Uh, we could also, I mean, again, we could talk about like why the forgiveness itself is a problem. The fact that it's not fair to people who've already paid it off. The fact that it's not fair to people who aren't getting that benefit because they decided not to go to college uh, or just made a different career choice or whatever. I mean, the the forgiveness is a it's a bad policy in and of itself. But taking the point that is being made by those folks about the difficulty that some people have in paying this debt off. To me, that means that it's it's time to, if there's going to be kind of government involvement in this at all, it's got to look different from what it looks like today uh, because it is not working. It's not, it's not really making college more affordable. It's instead putting people into debt for careers that may or may not ever, you know, give them the resources to pay that debt off, at least in a reasonable time period. And one other thing that I've learned since I began working on this is that the federal government on its balance sheet right now assumes that all those loans are going to be repaid which is a joke that that would be silly honestly anyway but there's i think it's 1.6 trillion dollars in federal student loan debt sitting out there in the economy right now and the federal government has on its books that this stuff is going to get repaid and it's that's not realistic so it's it's become sort of a financial absurdity for the government as well as the people that are are trying to benefit from it Governor Whitmer signed a new budget plan. Do you mind telling me a little bit about this plan and specifically how it compares to the ones she has vetoed in the past? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think she has actually ever vetoed a a whole budget. She's done line item vetoes, and I think she did in this case, too, although I'm not uh, I don't now remember uh, which which portions she did. I think it may be some related to some pregnancy support, uh, similar to to what we talked about before. But this so this is. the top, the headline that, that you're going to get is that it's a record budget. Almost every budget is record because of inflation naturally. Obviously, the inflation spiking the last couple of years um, has made that even more noticeable. Um, the, uh, I think the, head, the, the, the best ver- aspect of this budget is that it includes over $2.5 billion in debt relief. Um, so when we have this extra money, that's a very responsible thing to do with it. The other thing I like about this budget, I mean, like, look, the the basic, the bottom line is that there are lots of things about the budget that I don't particularly like. I mean, uh, we could we could get into a bunch of them, but the basic point of this is that it's bipartisan government, which means that there's compromise that I'm not necessarily a fan of, you know, compromises I'm not necessarily a fan of, and uh, with within within that there there is no tax relief, for instance, in this budget plan right now. Uh, so the debt relief is a version of tax relief because it does mean that we don't have to collect money in order to pay those debts in the future. But a more direct version would be better. The silver lining there is that there is still uh, there is still quite a bit of money in the kind of in the state at the state's disposal that has not been appropriated yet, and that could be a way in a way in which we could affect tax relief going forward. Um, to your question about previous vetoes, we have done various kinds of tax relief affecting uh, the gasoline tax, income tax, property taxes. The governor's vetoed everything that we've sent her on this. So I can't say that I expect there to be an arrangement that she'll accept that that we would actually produce in the near future. But there is money available for it if we can make some progress along those lines. All right. Thank you so much. That's all the questions I have for you today. Thanks, Lauren. 
Our guest has been State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.